are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, hello. My name is uh, Lance Ralston. I'm one of the board members for Enduring Word. I'm filling in for David today. David is on his way back from Europe after speaking at a pastor's conference there. And uh, he's in the air and so asked if one of us could cover uh, for him. And so uh, I'm filling in for David today. Uh, I'm, I'm Team C. Uh, team B would be uh, Miles Benedictus and Chuck Musselwhite. Uh, the other board members uh, with David and myself on the Enduring Word board. So, uh, of course, David is Team A, Team 1. So, uh, our first question today comes from Facebook. Asmitha asked this question, Do Luke 14, verse 26, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 contradict each other? And what should we do to follow Jesus? Now, these two verses present an apparent contradiction, not not a real contradiction, but an apparent one. And before we deal with those verses, I want to take a moment to talk about the larger issue of contradictions in the Bible, a frequent point that's brought up by skeptics and critics. Last week, I got an email from someone asking how to answer a comment by a critic, and it was this. It said, the original Bible was compiled of gathered writings 1,700 years ago, by the Catholic hierarchy, there have been 30,000 changes in the Bible, along with 1,000 contradictions in order to control the masses. Now, nothing in that statement is true. Not a thing. The person who said it probably assumes that it's true, not because they have any real proof, but because they heard it from another skeptic and they took it as fact. Many are the arguments that unbelievers use that both have no basis in reality and have already been ably answered, but they depend on people not knowing the answers, not knowing the truth. Now, in dealing with these kinds of things over the years, I found that most skeptics accept this fact, anything that seems to undercut Christianity, without checking to see if it's true, while at the same time demanding endless proof for the supports of the faith and even then refusing to admit that it's true. Now, without getting into detail in all the absurdities of that remark, the Bible was not compiled 1,700 years ago by the Catholic hierarchy. That's a restatement of a long-refuted falsehood that it was the Emperor Constantine and the 300 bishops of the Church Council at Nicaea in the early 4th century that established the books of the Bible. That's wrong on two accounts. The Council of Nicaea met to deal with a heresy called Arianism. The Council said nothing about the books of the Bible, and there was no Catholic Church hierarchy in the early 4th century. The story of the forming of what's called the Canon of Scripture, that is, the accepted books of the Bible, it's a fascinating tale, and when honestly engaged, leads to great confidence that we have the inspired, inerrant Word of God today. The books of the Old Testament were, of course, already settled by the 3rd century B.C., while the New Testament canon was finally closed at the Council of Carthage in 397. Now, I realize that seems late, but it's important to realize that the 27 books that the Council settled on had already been accepted as the standard for a long time. 
For example, the Muratorian Canon was written in 170 AD, and it lists the 27 books of the New Testament as the standard for the Christian faith and practice. By the time of the Council of Carthage 200 years after that, church leaders felt an obligation to simply say that the books that ought to be in the New Testament was a settled issue. You see, they knew that time had run out on being able to apply the exacting criteria that much earlier church leaders had used for deciding what books were legit. As for the 30,000 changes to the Bible, I don't even know what that means. There's simply no documentation for that. Scripture hasn't changed, as the Dead Sea Scrolls made clear for the Old Testament when they were discovered in the 1950s. As for changes to the New Testament, that's simply not true. There have been no changes. Yes, there have been translations into dozens of other languages from the Koine or Common Greek of the first century when they were originally penned, but no changes to the actual content. The number of 30,000 is just made up out of thin air. And as for a thousand contradictions in the Bible, not only are there not a thousand, there aren't any real contradictions in Scripture. Yes, there are some apparent or seeming contradictions that are cleared up by a careful examination of the text and, well, knowing what a contradiction is. A contradiction is a statement of conflicting facts that cannot both exist at the same time and in the same way. If I say, yesterday at 3 p.m. I was uh, physically both in and not in Los Angeles, California, <laughs> that's a contradiction because in the normal use of the words, both could not be true at the same time. Either I was or I wasn't in L.A., but I couldn't be both at the same time. An apparent or alleged contradiction exists when a careful look at what's said reveals that both statements could be true. Now, there are several of these in the Bible. Some present more of a challenge than others. For instance, how many angels were at Jesus' tomb after the resurrection? Well, Matthew and Mark's Gospels mention an angel, while Luke's says that there were two. And that seems like a contradiction until we make a closer look at all three accounts. Matthew and Mark don't say there was only one angel, just that there was an angel who spoke to the women who went to the tomb early Sunday morning. Luke says the women saw two angels. So, a little consideration of the three passages clears things up. There were two angels, but only one of them spoke. If Matthew and Mark had said that there was only one angel, or Luke had said that there were two and not one, well, then we'd have a problem. I could give more examples of alleged contradictions in the Bible, but let me instead recommend a book titled When Critics Ask by Geisler and Howe. There have been many books written to help sort out these Bible difficulties. But now, back to the question. Do Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 1 John 3, verse 10 contradict each other? And the follow-up question that Smitha asks is, what should we do to follow Jesus? Well, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, we find this. The Apostle John says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, that seems to be a contradiction until we dig a little deeper. You see, this is a classic case where context is crucial. In Luke 14, Jesus speaks to the need to count the cost of being his disciple, his follower. It's going to cost everything, even our own lives. In fact, in the next verse, he says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I'm sure you know that a cross was an implement of execution, and dead people can't follow Jesus. So, Jesus is obviously speaking metaphorically. He means that we must die to self. Putting Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and verse 27 together, we realize that Jesus means that being a disciple means that our relationship with him reigns supreme, so much so that all other relationships are cast in a different light, even our relationship with ourselves. So, of course, our relationship with parents and siblings is going to be affected. Our love for and devotion to Jesus is so far above and beyond that, for other relationships, it's like hate. Now, by the way, this kind of hyperbolic contrast was a common figure of speech among Jews in the first century. We may, not, we may not speak that way today, but they did. And this wasn't the only thing that Jesus had to say on the subject of love. In giving some final instructions to his disciples, he says this in John 15, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then again, five verses later, he says, These things I command you, that you love one another. Now, I assume when Smitha asked, what should we do to follow Jesus, it meant this in the light of these verses in Luke and 1 John. Does following Jesus mean hating or loving our family? But now that we've clarified what Jesus meant by hate, that it does not mean that we're to loathe our family, but that we're to seal our devotion to Jesus so tightly that no other relationship competes with it or weakens it. That means we do what Jesus says to do, and his command is that we love others. In other words, our love for Jesus compels us to love others. We love others because he tells us to, not just because they're our parents or siblings or friends. We love even our enemies and our strangers because Jesus tells us to. Loving him is lived out by loving others. Now, no one understood this better than the Apostle John, who wrote this in 1 John chapter 4. Listen to these words. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. So you see, the idea is this. The evidence that we really love God who we can't see is by loving and serving those that we can. So to Smitha's question, the simplest answer about how we are to follow Jesus is by a devotion to him that moves us to love and to serve others. Now, obviously, a lot more could be said about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, but as it relates to those verses in Luke 14 and 1 John 3, I think that pretty well covers it. All right, let's look on to our uh, next questions. 
I'm looking here to uh, our moderator to see if any have come in. I don't see that any have yet. Uh, and so let's refer to one of the questions that has come in at an earlier time. Uh, Waverly asked this, was the process of stoning in the days of Jesus? Uh, it seems several times that the Pharisees say things like they gathered up stones and prepared to stone him. So were these stones just around the temple in case they were needed, or did they go to a certain place to stone people? Uh, Waverly, that's a great question. And uh, from my understanding and my study and research on the uh, execution of stoning, uh, typically what they would do is they would take the condemned person to a high place, some kind of a cliff of which there are many around Israel, and they would throw them off so that when they landed, they would be dazed or, or a limb would be broken so that they would not be able to run away. And then the people would stand on the top of the cliff that the uh, condemned had just been uh, thrown off. And from that vantage point, then, uh, their stones would have greater effect because of the pull of gravity. And so they would take up stones, typically something that would require two hands to use, lift them over their heads, and then rain them down on the dazed person down below. That was the primary uh, form of stoning. But we do read, and I think what you're referring to is the reference to uh, the Pharisees uh, and Jesus' opponents and enemies taking up stones while he was in the temple. And of course, there wasn't any like cliff that they could take Jesus to and throw him off there. So the question was, where do they get these stones in the temple? Uh, because our view of the temple, as we think about the temple, we kind of think about, well, the way things are set out today. Um, not long ago, I took a trip to Israel and we went up to, onto the, uh, the Temple Mount. Of course, the temple's not there now. There's some Muslim buildings, Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And there's a huge pavement that, uh, that is set there. But we need to recognize that um, back in the ancient world, the world of the first century that we're uh, looking there uh, to in the, uh, when, when they would practice stoning, they didn't have everything uh, covered in cement and concrete like we do today. Uh, yes, there was a pavement in the temple, um, but there were also plenty of places where uh, there was plants that were growing and rocks were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. They, they came to hand. They, we see rocks today lying around as, you know, something's out of place because of the way that we design our landscaping and so on. It's just not the way it was in the ancient world. Um, they didn't see rocks sitting around as, um, you know, why are these here? How did these get here? Uh, they were just part of the scenery, part of the landscape. And so there would have been rocks that were there on the Temple Mount that, that could have been used uh, for for stoning and that came to hand. So there's the answer. Hopefully that that um, solves the answer to that. Uh, R.A. Freak asked this question, what is your position on the validity of a pre-70 AD writing of Revelation? It seems to me that a lot of what John wrote happened in the first century. Now listen, that's a great question and it deals with uh, a teaching regarding eschatology or end-time things called preterism. And so uh, preterists believe that virtually everything that is foretold in the book of Revelation, except the very last chapters, was fulfilled um, before 70 AD in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
And so what they do is they take the visions that John had in Revelation and they find some kind of fulfillment for them in uh, the events typically of the Roman uh, conquest of, of, uh, of Israel there in the first century between 68 and 72 AD. Um, here's, here's the problem with that. Um, I, I'm of a futurist view, believing that most of the book of Revelation uh, will be fulfilled uh, in end time events, which are yet to occur, uh, and that John had visions of those things and described them in terminology that would have been understandable in the first century. Um, that's the view of the enduring word ministry here. That's David's view and Miles's view and Chuck's view and my view. We're, we're futurists. Um, but the preterist view believes that most of the book of Revelation was fulfilled by 70 AD. Uh, you have to take uh, the visions that John had in the book of Revelation and um, spiritualize them to a great degree in order to make them fit uh, events that happened uh, in 70 AD and before. You, you, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, at one point, John says that because of the plagues that come on earth, a quarter of the world's population will die. And then a bit later, because of the results of another plague, uh, another one of the judgments of God, a third of the world's population will die. So you put those numbers together and uh, a total of a half of the world's population uh, will be wiped out by the judgments of God and the plagues of that are described in the book of Revelation. Um, how do you find a fulfillment of that in the events that happened in Israel in 70 AD? You see, you have to so spiritualize those, they, they don't make sense anymore. The words can't line up. Um, and so, preterists believe that John had to have written the book of Revelation before 70 AD, because they say those things were prophetic of events that happened in 70 AD. We know actually historically that John wrote the book of Revelation probably in the 90s, early 90s AD, not, not before 70 AD, but in the early 90s. And here's why. Because John had been sentenced to the island of Patmos, which he says there in the first chapter, he had been sentenced to the island of Patmos uh, under the reign of Domitian. Domitian was a Roman emperor that lived in the 90s. He wasn't an emperor in 70 AD or 68 AD. So historically, the setting for Revelation is not in 70 AD. Uh, or 68 AD, when they say that he wrote it. It was in, uh, I think, 90 AD, 90-91 AD. Pretty, pretty historically clear for that. Uh, preterists, um, and there are some very smart preterists, but um, they really have to make the text fit uh, to, to promote their, their view on the end times. Well, I'm not seeing any questions, uh, Nathan. Um, for some reason, there's no, I'm not getting any um, questions through. Not sure why. 
if you could text them to me on the phone, that would be great, but I'm not, not seeing them. Uh, I did see one that had come in earlier on the chat. Let me see if I can scroll back here uh, that came in earlier. Uh, this was by Terry, and Terry asked the question, um, I listened to Pastor's commentary on John 1, verse 29. I take it, Terry, you mean Pastor David's commentary on that passage? And you say, he explained it. I get that I'm just hung up on the wording of the next day. Why they used that when it was 40 days in the wilderness. Thank you. Um, Terry, let me, let me go to uh, that passage of scripture. And I think I can uh, call it up here. Let's see if this works. Uh, so John 1.29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So uh, I think, Terry, what you're doing is you're putting together some earlier uh, stories, but not from the context here in John's gospel. Because the verses just prior to this uh, were the Pharisees and the scribes that had come to John the Baptist while he was baptizing there in the Jordan. And he was, um, they were challenging him on where he got his authority to baptize. They didn't like what he was doing. And so they opposed him. And of course, John answers them. And so that story ends. And then verse 29 says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. So um, the, the, the next day isn't in reference to the time that Jesus spent in the wilderness, it's in reference to what happened with John the Baptist in the previous verses. So um, I think that's the solution to that. I, ho I hope that clears that up for you. Okay, uh, well, on the Q&A, I have to be able to have questions to answer them, and <laughs> I don't see any coming through. Uh, let me look through here on the chat and see if there's anything that I can pick up. Oh, here, here's one. Donald asks, why did Jesus ask the layman at the pool, do you want to be better? Um, Donald, that's such a great question. And uh, it, it does seem obvious, right? That, uh, of course, he wants to be better. That's why he's at the pool. And, and you'll remember the story that he's been lying there for years, waiting for the stirring of the water, because the belief was that an angel came down, and, and when the water was disturbed, the first person into the water got healed. But he's lame, and there's many other people around waiting for the moving of the water so they can jump in. Somebody always beats him, and he's been there now this way for a long time. And so Jesus, just, he asked a question, which seems like a no-brainer, Hey, do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? And notice the man's answer. He says, someone always beats me to it. Someone always beats me into the water. Isn't that interesting? We would expect him to say, yeah, that's why I'm here. But he comes up with an excuse. And I think what we're seeing here is we're seeing Jesus deal with something that's deeper than just the surface appearance. The guy's there. He's that's a place to be healed. But his reply may indicate something that was going on in the man's heart, which of course Jesus saw. And he's drilling down on that. A person who has been 
dealing with an issue for a long time and they're not making progress in overcoming it can get to the point where they just resign themselves to it. And they become so habituated to their lifestyle, to their behavior, to their identity as needing healing, being broken, you know, that they, they get to the point where outwardly they would say, well, yeah, I want to get better. But when it comes to it, down to it, what it would take to get better, they're not willing to do. They've accommodated themselves to their brokenness. And I think we see this with a lot of people today. They know that they could be saved. They know that Jesus is the answer to their problem, but they're so used to their lifestyle, to their brokenness, to their sin. They know it's not good. They know that they should not be doing it, but, you know, I've been doing it so long. And they, they end up identifying with their spiritual lameness. And so Jesus asks the guy, hey, do you want to get better? Because it gives the man an opportunity to stop and think about what he's thinking about. And he realizes in his own reply, he's got an excuse. Well, yeah, but, you know, somebody always gets in ahead of me. And he has to now confront that. You know what? That's an excuse. And so Jesus then meets his need. He heals the guy. And, you know, he healed him not only from his lameness, his physical, uh, his, his physical weakness, I think Jesus healed him of something even more important, his, his spiritual weakness, his spiritual disability. He was identifying himself as lame and perpetually lame. And Jesus liberated him from the physical ailment as well as the spiritual ailment. And I think it's a good question that we can all ask, even those of us that are believers that follow Jesus, because all of us have some kind of spiritual lameness yet, something that the Holy Spirit is working on. We all know how it is as we walk with God. We, we are led from glory to glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're, we're being led into deeper experiences of God's truth and grace and mercy, seeing more and more about ourselves as time goes by, seeing those things that are ugly, that we have, we realize, accommodated ourselves to. And God says, do you want to get better? And we have to ask the question, do I? Do I really want to get better? And the answer is, once we've seen what God has for us, how much better life is when we yield completely to Him, total surrender, then we say yes. Now, sometimes the Spirit has to ask us the question, do you really want to get better? So, hope that helps. Let me take a look here and see if there's another question that we can get to. Oh, here, here's a good one. Deeply philosophical. Uh, this is from the uh, person that goes by the label, Now I Know. It says, Hi, sir. If God already knows which amongst all people will inherit the kingdom of God, why are others born and thus let to suffer? That is a Wow, profound question. And, and really, one of the reasons why some skeptics and critics reject the gospel, reject the Christian faith, it's, um, 
it's kind of a form of the question, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Now, um, that's, that's a deep philosophical question that we can deal with at another time. Let's deal with this flavor of that question. God knows ahead of time who is going to be saved and who is not. So, why doesn't God allow only those who are going to be saved to be born? Why, why let people be born who are going to reject him and end up in eternal torment? Well, there isn't a simple answer to that. It's a deeply philosophical and theological question. Let me attempt um, as simple an answer as I can. God gave human beings the power to choose. He created us in his image. And part of that image means the ability to be able to make real choices. Because the ultimate goal is a love relationship with God. God created us in his image so that we could have a real relationship with him. And that relationship then has to be free. We have to be free to choose it or not. And we know what happened. Adam and Eve chose to turn away from that relationship. We call it the fall. God does not take away our power of choice because it's all about love and love has to be free. And if it's free, it has the power to say no, to choose not to love, not to be in relationship. So for God to only make people that would be saved, he's in effect denying choice of those that will not. I realize that may not be a real satisfying answer, but it is the truth. What does God do with a man and woman who have a sexual relationship? It's their choice to do that. And because of that Sexual contact is the potential for the generation of a new life. What is God to do? To stop the fertilization of that egg? Uh, is, is Because that, that person that comes from that will eventually reject him and end up in hell? You see, what he, what's happening is he, in effect, is taking away the choice of the people who are committing that act. There have to be consequences for our choices or the choices aren't real. Let me use an example. A, a person picks up a gun that has a bullet in it and they pull the trigger aimed at a person. The bullet comes out of the front of the gun and goes towards the person. Because God is all-powerful, he could snatch the bullet out of the air but if he does that, what has he just done to the person who made the choice to pull the trigger knowing that that bullet was going to kill someone? You see, that choice no longer has a consequence. Consequently, <laughs> a real choice has not been made. We can't even imagine a world like that where because God is all-loving and all-powerful, he does not allow the consequences of free choices. They're no longer free choices. They're no longer real choices because they don't really do anything. Anything that we would deem evil or wrong or bad because it's a consequence maybe we don't like. 
God's perspective on the totality of eternity is much larger and greater than ours. All of us have personal experience of something that seems bad at the moment and ends up turning out good, and vice versa, seems good at the moment and ends up turning out bad. God knows from the beginning, even before the choice is made, what the consequence of those choices are going to be. And because he's created us as humans to be free, to make real choices that have real consequences, he honors that. Otherwise, we're not really human. And that question can't even be asked because we wouldn't be human anymore. And so there will be people in heaven and people in hell And when all is said and done, and we see the justice of God, we will say that God was just and perfect in his decisions from beginning to end. Right now, from our perspective, it may be a little bit difficult to see how that works out. But from the perspective of eternity, knowing that God is all good, all loving, all powerful, and perfectly just, we will come to that place and say, he is holy, he is righteous, he is just in all that he has done. And those that have ended in eternal torment and hell, that was their choice. Think of this. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, those that end up in hell will have, they won't be in hell wishing they were in heaven. Think about that. Why? Because what makes heaven heaven is God. And what these people throughout their life have chosen is I don't want God. I want nothing to do with him. I don't want to answer to him. I don't want him uh, messing with my life and my choices. And so the ultimate result of that is that they get eternity with what they wanted. Existence without God. And so no one in hell wishes they were in heaven. Now, they might wish they weren't in hell, (laughs) but they don't wish they were in heaven because Heaven's where God is, and they don't want God. It's a sobering thought, but it's true. All right. Scroll down here a little bit, see what else we have. Okay, uh, Nathan says uh, we're having some technical issues. Not a problem, Nate. Appreciate you moderating. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead and leave your, your questions in the chat, and I'll see if I can pick them up there. Oh, hey, Leo. Good to see you, my friend. Uh, so, Leo asks, can you speak on the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I can, and I hope this is helpful. Uh, I'm sure most of the viewers are aware that there is some controversy on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are those that would say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is salvation, Uh, that when you are born again, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then there are those that say uh, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience with the Holy Spirit uh, that comes subsequent to salvation, after being saved. Uh, I'm of that opinion. I know that um, Miles and Chuck and David are of that opinion as well. Uh, The baptism of the Holy Spirit is, as we say, a subsequent experience to salvation. Uh, maybe the clearest uh, demonstration of that in Scripture is when Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples and he breathed on them, you'll remember, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
the words there, receive the Holy Spirit, it's an imperative, it's a command, and it means right now. It's in the present tense. So receive the Holy Spirit. It's something Jesus is breathing on them because the word wind, breath, and spirit are all the same in Greek. Um, uh, pneuma. Uh, the idea of the Spirit is the Spirit's invisible, but you see the effect of the Spirit in, in its movement, his movement on people. And just as the wind, you don't see the wind, but you can see its effect. You know the wind is blowing because the leaves on the tree are, are, are moving. And it's the same way with the Spirit. We can't see the Spirit, but we can see the movement of the Spirit by what happens in people's lives. And so Jesus breathes on them, kind of an object lesson, and no doubt literally imparting the Holy Spirit to them because he is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. And then says, receive the Holy Spirit so that they know that's what's happening. And notice this, right after that, it says in Luke's gospel that uh, he opened their understanding and then showed them how all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. Isn't that interesting? As we read the gospels before that, when Jesus would teach them, so often the disciples were clueless, right? He would teach them and be like, oh yeah, and then they'd, do you know what he's talking about? And Jesus would say things like, hey, guys, don't you get what I'm saying? This is simple stuff. And then he would go on and he would elaborate and they'd be, oh yeah, and you knew they weren't really getting it. That's why he said the same things again and again and again and again, because it took a while for them to grasp these truths. Why? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And that's why Jesus says in John's gospel, he says, as he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, who will come to them after the resurrection, he says, the Holy Spirit has been with you, but will be in you. Well, it's here as Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes to live in them. How do we know that? Because it says he opened their understanding and they finally understood uh, the word of God, the scriptures, and how they spoke of him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says uh, that the natural man does not understand the things of, of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. And this is why people who, don't, who aren't saved, aren't born again, they read the Bible and it's just gibberish to them. They don't really get it. They may understand kind of the technical or straightforward meaning of the words, but they don't understand the spiritual truths that are being communicated in the Scriptures. But when you haven't, how many people watching right now, or that you know in your church, in your fellowship, in your small group, uh, they give testimony. In fact, I read the Bible; it didn't make any sense to me. I I was born again, and and the Bible became a new book be, because we have the Holy Spirit now. You see, as Jesus said, He's with you, meaning in Christ, He will be in you. And he comes within them, and then. Jesus told them as he was preparing to ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives, remember what he said to the disciples who were gathered there on the mount with him, he said, return to Jerusalem and wait until the promise of the Father has come upon you. Different preposition. The Holy Spirit's with you, he will be in you, and then even after you see the Holy Spirit was in them, proved by their understanding scripture, he says the Holy Spirit will be upon you. He will come upon you. And then, of course, we read in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with other tongues and became powerful witnesses of him there in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and continuing on to the ends of the earth. And so we see, you see the two relationships there? They were born again on that resurrection Sunday evening 
when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. How do we know they were born again? Because they finally understood the scriptures. But there was this other experience with the Holy Spirit that came later on the day of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. So I think that well explains the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus says that this is to be normative. Let's make sure we're not separating Christians into two groups, you know, those that have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and those that haven't. We should all be baptized in the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's normative. It's, it's what all of us should be uh, seeking and experiencing. Uh, and you weren't baptized with the Holy Spirit once. Um, you, 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 there's an initial experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, but then it should be normative that we're constantly being filled Ephesians 5, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, then we walk in the Spirit. And that's how then, as Jesus says, power will come upon you and you will be witnesses of me. It's as we are walking in the Spirit, the Spirit constantly filling us, that then we show forth not our lives, but the life of Christ. Or maybe our lives, if you will, but a life that has been redeemed and transformed by the presence of Christ. All right. I hope that helps. Uh, Leo, uh, good to hear from you, my friend. Uh, Gary T. asks, Hello, Pastor Lance. I love your podcast, especially the series of episodes about Rabban Sama. Uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, Johanian comma issue? Oh, man. So, George, I didn't read that question uh, before reading it out loud, so now I'm on the hook to answer it, right? But it's, I don't like that question, I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> hey, George, hey, hey, thanks for the, um, the shout-out about the, uh, the podcast. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I have a, a church history podcast called Communio Sanctorum, History of the Christian Church. There was an audio version uh, that um, I think I started it in 2016, uh, runs to... Um, uh, about a hundred and a half episodes uh, on the history of the church, just real short format, 20 minutes uh, per episode, just working our way through church history. And uh, now I'm doing a video version of it uh, on my YouTube channel, uh, a video version of the audio podcast and having a blast doing that. So, so thanks, George. Uh, appreciate that. Um, when I got done with season one, which was just an overview of church history up to the 19th century, I decided to do some more in-depth episodes I called season two. And one of them uh, was on a fascinating character of church history named Raban Sama. Um, we, we've all heard of Marco Polo, you know, this European that went to China and uh, had amazing experiences and, and then came back and the record of his experiences there really just inflamed Europe with an interest in the Far East and then all the age of discovery and all that came from that. Um, but Raban Sama was kind of a reverse Marco Polo. It was an amazing character. And I had never even heard of this guy, never read about him in church history, which I had done a lot of reading on. And uh, I, I learned about him uh, at the Reagan Library and the uh, Genghis Khan exhibit that they had at the Reagan Library. Going through there, and there was this one little plaque about this character named Raban Sama, this, this Christian monk in China who uh, decided to travel to the West, travel to Europe, and to meet the Pope. And I'm like, I've never heard of this guy. And so I went home and dug up everything I could find on the guy. 
fascinating story. And I think I did 12 episodes in season two on Raban Sama, just charting his, because he wrote an, an extensive log, a diary of his journeys. What an amazing guy. Went all the way. He ended up, he ended up meeting the Pope. He ended up in England and then went back home to China. And I'll bet, I'll bet hardly any of you have ever even heard of this guy. We never learned about him in school. Fascinating character, Raban Sama. If you're interested, you can look up the uh, Communio Sanctorum History of the Christian Church audio podcast and go to season two and look up, uh, look up the series on Raban Sama. I'll eventually get to it in my, uh, my church history uh, videos that I'm doing on church history. Uh, I'll eventually get to it, but that, that's going to be that's going to be way out. Uh, and then uh, Donald asked, or was it George? George asked the question um, uh, about the Johannian comma. Yeah, it's a great question. So, as evangelicals, we have a super high regard for the Bible. That we believe that it is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Uh, but that does not mean that we don't recognize that there are some manuscript challenges, because let's remember, we don't have the autographs, meaning the original manuscripts written by the apostles. We don't have those. We have copies of copies of copies, and some of those copies are really early, so the distance and time between the original and the copies that we have is a very short period of time. Uh, but the Johannian comma is, is um, in, in um, John's first epistle, there is a statement that, that is an overt support for the Trinity. And uh, there's a lot of controversy on it because the manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts that we have of 1 John's epistle, do not have that verse. And, and it's, really, it's really the single place in the New Testament that we can say with real confidence that was not in what John wrote. John did not write that. That was a scribal emendation, a scribal note that was written in the margin of the epistle. And at some point, someone moved it from the margin, as they were copying, they moved it from the margin into the text, right after a verse that says something that's pretty close to the same thing. Um, but we know from documentation of earlier manuscripts, even manuscripts that um, we, we know conservatives hold as inspired and, and, and of quality, uh, it wasn't in them. It doesn't appear till, till late. And so we can say with, with real confidence, and actually I think it's, it's one of those things that gives even greater credence to our belief and support and confidence in the veracity of the New Testament manuscripts and documents that we're able to say regarding this one verse, that's not, that shouldn't be there. Uh, it, it does not really belong in the text. John, we have great confidence that John uh, did not include that in his, in his original epistle. It's a great verse for supporting the Trinity, but you know what? Listen, <laughs> take that verse out. It doesn't do anything in changing uh, the Bible's doctrine on the Trinity. The Trinity is found in many other places. Uh, there are three persons in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that claim to be God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all make, they all make claims that can only be applied to them. So either one or two or three are, 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 one or two are uh, lying, <laughs> not likely, 
or it's true, meaning that there are three persons who make up the one God. Okay? So, yeah, we don't need the comma Johanian as it's referred to by scholars. All right. I think we're closing in on our, yeah, we got a few minutes left. Let's see here. I should read the questions before I read them out loud because maybe I don't want to answer one of them because I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> oh boy, okay. So this is controversial. Malcolm Blake, I'm going to go ahead and read your question. It is a controversial question. Um, and it's, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to get some haters and supporters on this question. All right. Uh, he says, I'm in a reformed church. I believe the five points of tulip to be soundly biblical. Some people call reformed theology or Calvinism heretical. What is heresy according to the Bible? Okay. That, that, that is a great question. Um, so, you know, I want to dive into the whole Calvinism versus Arminianism versus traditionalism, you know, all these labels that we, we have. Let's, let's zero it in. Let's narrow it to, to your uh, specific question. What does the Bible mean by heresy? Nowhere in the Bible do we find a definition of heresy. Um, heresy means to divide. The, the, the root word means to, to divide. And, uh, Heresy would be a deviation from the essentials of the faith. I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase, in essentials, unity, in uh, the non-essentials, um, how does it go? In the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, grace, and in all things charity. So, there are going to be differences of opinion on issues that are not necessary for us to be saved. Earlier, we were dealing with the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People can dis disagree on that. Uh, Christians do. People who are saved disagree on that. Brilliant people line up on both sides of that. So that's not essential. But there are certain things that must be believed in order to have genuine faith in Jesus. And that would be something like the deity of Christ. Because if Jesus wasn't God, then he could not have died for our sins. If, if he was only man, he would be a sinner. And so when he died, he would only be dying for his own sins. Um, even if he was sinless, which would be impossible if he was only human. So, Jesus, we must believe in the deity of Christ. We must believe uh, other essentials, that his death on the cross provides the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that his death fully pays for our sins, and that we cannot work to earn God's favor. Salvation is a gift that we receive by faith, faith in Jesus that he is God, and that he died for our sins, you see? It isn't just faith. It isn't just believing something or anything that you want. It isn't the presence of, of really believing something that saves us. It's faith in, a, in something specific. 
And that's what constitutes the essentials, that Jesus is God, that Jesus died for our sins, and that he rose again from the dead, proving, you see, that his death has paid for our sins. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, he'd still be dead, and that means he would still be, in effect, paying for our sins. This is why the resurrection is absolutely essential. You can't be born again. You can't be saved and not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's not possible. The resurrection proves that our sins have been paid for, and so that our faith has real substance and content in what Christ did. And another thing that we must believe in is the ascension of Christ, that he ascended into heaven. Because think about this, the ascension uh, of Christ back to heaven, to, to the Father's right hand, is proof that the Father has accepted him and his work. Because ultimately, the Father is the judge. He's the, he's the one that determines whether the atoning sacrifice of Christ can account for those who put their faith in Christ. So, there are some other essentials. Heresy would be to not agree with any one of those essentials. All those essentials must be believed in order to be saved. Now, a person who first comes to faith in Christ may not understand all the nuances. I know I didn't. I'll bet most people listening right now, when they were first saved, they didn't understand all the nuances of the theology. That, were, that, that they came to understand or are coming to understand, all they knew was that they were a sinner because the Holy Spirit was convicting them, and they realized that, that the message was that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again from the dead to give us new life, to, to, justify, our, our, uh, to justify us before God. And believing that, they were then born again. But then as we grow in our faith, we grow in our knowledge of Christ and what he's done and doctrine and theology, and we begin to understand how it all works, you see. That's why it's so important to be in a good Bible-teaching and Bible-believing church so that you can learn these things. Because the more you learn about what Christ has done, about who he is, and what he continues to do in us by the Holy Spirit, the, the deeper our relationship grows. Uh, it's like a marriage. You, you get to know somebody at first, you're attracted to them, you get married, and then marriage is about growing in your knowledge of your mate, right? Over the years, you become more intimate as you get to know each other better. And in that process, what do you do? You get to know yourself better. In, that, in terms of that relationship, as you're getting to know that other person better, you're actually learning stuff about yourself, and you're seeing things that need to change. And so it's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. As we grow in our relationship and our knowledge with Him, it starts to reveal stuff about ourselves. Actually, the Holy Spirit is revealing that so that we can bring that to Christ, and He who is the Savior can save us from them. So the work of Christ's salvation isn't just something He did, it's something He does, and something ultimately He will do uh, when He brings us into, into glory. All right, so heresy, uh, man, long answer. I'm really wordy, aren't I? Um, heresy is a deviation from any of the essentials that uh, are required in order to be uh, born again, in order to be saved. All right. Let's see.
Okay, uh, just trying to read some of these. It, it, I, there's a lot of comments in between the questions, so sorry, I'm just having to scan down here. Sorry for the delay. Um, I'm not really seeing any questions. A lot of comments. One about um, a link to my church history podcast. Let me scroll back up a bit farther here and see if I can find something. Oh, oh, here's a good one. And I love this. Uh, we may end with this one. Uh, Candisphere asks this question, As born-again Christians, does our eternal life begin only after death or are we already living in our eternal life now, here on Earth? Uh, watching from Cologne, Germany. Uh, Canisphere, uh, man, I love Cologne. It's such a gorgeous city. I have so enjoyed, as I mentioned, I, church history, the Cologne Cathedral. Are you kidding me? That thing's amazing. In fact, one of my uh, episodes in church history, I did on, um, on the architecture of medieval cathedrals, and I use primarily Cologne Cathedral because it's something I'm so familiar with. Oh, I just love it. The treasury that's in back behind the Cologne Cathedral, listen, anybody watching, if you ever get over to Cologne, Germany, go see the cathedral. It's amazing. But don't miss the, the treasury. Most people do because it's hardly even, you don't even know it's there. It's around behind the building, and it, they call it the treasury because it's the place where all of the treasures of the uh, cathedral are kept. There's a bunch of vestments back there that the different um, archbishops have worn uh, that, that presided there over the years. The croziers, you know, those stylized shepherd staffs that they, that they would carry, their miters, and uh, the reliquary that's back there with the, supposed to be the relics, you know, that, that were the heart of the cathedral. Oh, it's just an amazing thing. Anyway, Cologne. Love the city, love the city. And so, Canisphere, uh, when, when does eternal life begin? That's such a great question, and it's one I love preaching on. Eternal life begins the moment you're born again. Um, it, it, it's, it isn't just referred to, eternal life doesn't just refer to endless life. It refers to a quality of life as well. It is a new life. That's why, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things away. Behold, all things have become new. We, we have a new life, and that life, which is eternal, begins at the moment that we're born again. And that is why uh, we are to grow in truth and grace. We are to um, experience Christ, this life that he's given to us, and, and, it, and to just begin to experience the reality of eternal life now. And I look back to the early church and the transformation that took place in those first disciples. The, the, the great hallmark of their lives was their love. Now, let's not forget who those first Christians were. They were Jews. And as Jews, they were highly moral people. They uh, endeavored to keep the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments were very important to them. They were their mandate for living, for goodness sake. And so they were an incredibly moral people, at least outwardly. They appeared that way. And so when they became Christians, the people around them would not have noticed a tremendous moral difference in them. 
So what was the difference? What was the real distinction between these followers of Jesus and their, their Jewish peers? It was the love they had for each other. It was so remarkable that even when the officials were putting the pressure on them and persecuting them, they were winning people to faith in Christ. You know, those early centuries of the church, the first three centuries of the church, though the church was persecuted, persecution got worse after the, you know, the earliest days of the church. As it began to move out into the Gentile world, it became officially persecuted, and yet it kept growing. Why? Because of the quality of the lives of those that had come to faith in Christ. There was a difference. They were, it was a different way to live, literally. And the people around them saw that and said, I know that becoming a Christian could result in me losing my job, losing my family, losing my friends, losing my life. But what I'm seeing in this person who's become a Christian is, is of greater attraction to me than survival. That's amazing. Eternal life begins the moment we're born again. We enter into the fullness of our awareness of the reality of God when the veil between this world and the spiritual is removed. And that happens with our death. And that is why death has really changed its meaning for the Christian. It's why in the New Testament, death is referred to oftentimes as sleep. The body stops working. The spirit goes to be with the Lord. The day is coming when the spirit and a new body will be reunited. And death takes on a new meaning for the believer. As Paul would say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Uh, yep, we're a little bit after one, so God bless you guys. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.